next hour, I'll be reading from the February 16th, 2024 issues of the Island Dispatch and the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. And we'll begin with the Island Dispatch, patrols increased to combat vehicle thefts. Grand Island has ramped up police patrols in response to a rise in car thefts over previous years, according to a letter Supervisor Peter Marston posted on the town's official website February 8th. In Marston's letter, he said that on February 7th, he had an extensive conversation with Erie County Sheriff John Garcia about the recent influx in vehicle thefts. Since January 1st, 2024, Grand Island has experienced six stolen vehicles throughout the town, Marston said. On Wednesday, he revealed that of the six car thefts, every single one was unlocked with keys inside. In response to the rise in crime, he said in his letter that last week the Grand Island Police Department began increased patrols as well as a search for additional officers in order to expand patrols with additional shifts. Marston said that Grand Island is unique in having three police agencies that answer calls for service. These include county sheriffs, state troopers, and the GIPD. All these agencies communicate and work together to ensure safety and serve our community, Marston said in his online letter. In my discussion with Sheriff Garcia, he and I are committed to increasing our patrol presence on Grand Island. On behalf of the GIPD and Sheriff Garcia, I am asking for your extra vigilance and attention to removing fobs and keys from vehicles, and please lock your vehicles. This action will be the number one deterrent to mitigate these crimes. Marston said, if you see any suspicious activity, please do not hesitate to call 911 or the non-emergency dispatch number 716-858-2903 immediately. If you see something, say something. Please help us, help our community. The full text of the supervisor's letter can be found at https www.grandislandnyus/civicalertsaspx?aid equals 149. Marston said Wednesday that the town has made some shifts in police coverage, including town police doing some overnights. He said adjustments include changes to the scope of patrols as well as going places they didn't go before in coverage. Also, he said, other entities are involved in the effort to beef up patrols. Marston wouldn't reveal specifics of the plan. You don't give bad people your playbook. But he said island residents can be assured that we have substantially ramped up police presence. Longtime island resident Lindsay Cruz said she has gathered 560 petition signatures calling for immediate action to address the escalating security issues on Grand Island. Cruz said she sent a letter to Marston asking him to arrange a meeting with her so she could share her ideas on how we can effectively protect our island with the community's help. She posted the text of her letter to Marston on the Facebook page for the group Grand Island Crime Reporting and Prevention. Cruz's letter said, Thefts and criminal incidents on the island have reached alarming levels, causing distress among residents who have long cherished the safety and security of our community. Marston said the increase in patrols was due to the fact of what we're seeing, not in response to Cruz's petition. Our next article is by Karen Carr Keefe, senior contributing writer. Town says persistent poor drainage needs permanent relief. Flooding similar to what occurred January 26th on Grand Island's north end has been an ongoing problem in search of an effective remedy, and the town has resolved to be proactive in finding relief. A heavy rain, combined with snowmelt, sent water surging on streets such as South Lane and Pin Oak Circle in the vicinity of Woods and Spicer Creeks late last month. The town board, on February 5th, passed a resolution by Supervisor Peter Marston seeking support from government and agency officials 
to allow the town to fix the problem of poor drainage that could again cause draining problems. A letter has gone out to the officials, Marston said Wednesday. He said the town monitored the flooding as it was happening via drone, then redid the drone investigation when the ground was dry for comparison. Another measure will be taken of water levels when the town gets another rain of a half inch or so. Then mapping will be done. The goal, the goal is to provide video evidence to support the town's request for aid in easing rules and providing funding to prevent flooding. Marston said the response from the public has been positive to their approach. Speaking of government officials, they don't want to modify the creeks, he said, but the supervisor noted that's exactly what's needed to prevent a recurrence of flooding. They don't want us to increase the creeks to accommodate anything. Our point is, we just want to restore them back to what they were. Marston said the emerald ash borer effect on island trees has been devastating. Down trees and silt are plugging the waterways, and regulations discourage the extent of the cleanup that is needed. There are so many rural wooded areas where these things just aren't being cleaned out, he said. There's fallen trees packed in with mud and debris, keeping the creeks from flowing as they used to. Highway Superintendent Dick Crawford said that without relief from state regulations, flooding will continue. Our storm sewers, as part of the road system, are all clean and clear. But when we get that much melting and rain, the creeks back up and there's nowhere for the water to go, Crawford said. So until that settles down, then the creeks start to drain, we get relief then. He said that situation is understandably problematic to the homeowner affected by the flooding. We respect their viewpoint, Crawford said. Both Marston and Crawford said state regulations tie the town's hands in fixing the problem. Crawford said the Department of Environmental Conservation is the agency whose regulations are restricting the necessary remediation work that would open the creeks back up. The two town officials said Grand Island isn't the only community affected. Other municipalities would benefit from an easing of the restrictions and hamper cleanup of creeks and streams. The triple threat to Grand Island, Marston said, is the ash borer, the clay basis, and we have no elevation. Back in the day, the farmers really kept the drainage working here. They need to keep their property viable, and before restrictions, they would go out and they would clean the creeks, and they worked. When it rains, it got wet, but it went somewhere, to the river, he said. But now, that just doesn't happen. Marston was at a housing summit the week of the flooding. The governor talked about initiatives to make areas more development-friendly, which I'm not particularly fond of that, he said. Marston noted Governor Kathy Hochul, at the same time, is increasing regulations, a scenario he sees as contradictory. Again, I'm not looking to overdevelop by any means, but I said right out, we couldn't even consider developing until we fix what we have, back to where it was, he said. Marston explained he learned at workshops and focus groups at the State Housing Summit that everybody in a small rural town like Grand Island has the same problems. They complain about restrictions and losing ground to wetlands because the creeks don't work, he said. Restrictions are probably a little bit stronger on us because we actually feed into the river, which is a Class A water stream. It changes the dynamic of what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Because the whole premise behind streams and creeks is that they actually filter the water before they get to the bigger body of water. Marston said the town keeps a small annual contingency fund, the amount dependent on what projects the town needs to do. More is needed to resolve the drainage issues that the town is prioritizing. Crawford said the working on short-term solutions, but the longer-term needs of the town is what they are really focusing on. We have enough talent to help ourselves, Marston said in describing the staffing of the relevant departments in solving the drainage issues. There are certainly things that will be over our head, but we can certainly help ourselves. We've talked to our grant writers. There is some opportunity out there for grants for a small town to do some things. 
He added, we're trying to engage all our hierarchy of officials who have member money and can steer funds around. We want to impress on them that this is really a high priority for Grand Island. I consider this the silent infrastructure of Grand Island. Our next article is also written by Karen Carr Keefe, Island Artist to Shine at Show. A group of six Grand Island artists is launching an art show next week at the Buffalo Launch Club, 503 East River Road. Island Art Exhibit will take place from 4 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 23rd, and from 2 to 8 Saturday, February 24th. The exhibit is free and open to the public, and exhibited works are for sale. Karen McDonough has said her goal as an artist is to combine drawing and painting while capturing the light, weather, and change of season. McDonough has a bachelor's degree in art from Buffalo State University. She has exhibited at the Birchfield Penny Art Center, the Castellani Art Museum, and the East Aurora Art Society Outdoor Fine Art Exhibit and Sale. McDonough has organized the show along with Maria Lorendi, an artist who is also a realtor. Lorendi said art brings a balance to her life. Painting is very, very soothing and very calming. She said she has always been involved in arts and crafts, but it wasn't until 2011 that she discovered her love for oil painting. Lorendi studied with Joan Horn at Partners in Art for more than 10 years and has participated in several art shows, including Lewiston, Allentown, Riverwalk, and the Castellani Art Museum. She has won several awards for her landscapes, still life paintings, and portraits. Her daughter-in-law, Danielle Lorendi, balances art and motherhood. She and her husband have two children ages three and five. I'm always looking for those beautiful special moments, Lorendi said. Then I transform them into something equally as special, something breathtaking, something heart-stirring for you to hang in your house. She graduated in 2012 with an art degree in painting at Alfred University. I love painting special moments, something a little whimsical or a breathtaking sunrise, Lorendi said. She is available for commissions. Deborah Rice is a member of the Buffalo Niagara Arts Association and has been an artist for more than 20 years. She is currently working in watercolor. She said what inspires her art is beautiful things that have meaning to me. Rice has won several awards for her work and has shown pieces in local galleries. Her training includes oil, charcoal, pen, and ink, pastel, watercolor, and colored pencil. After raising four children, she studied with teachers who include Joan Horn, Sean Patrick Daly, Jody Zeem, and Kathy Giles. She lives on Grand Island with her husband of 45 years. Paula Siuk said in her artist statement, it is preferable to be more intimate with the world, to observe and contemplate what is before me, capturing a vanishing moment through my lens-based and field sound work. It is solitary and often lonely work, taking great patience in environments that are mostly unpredictable, sometimes inhospitable, and more often luminous. Her art reflects a strong thread of environmental advocacy, activism, outreach, protection of marine habitat, and wildlife. Siuk, a member, a native of Western New York, is a multidisciplinarian artist. She has completed a bachelor's degree in design at Buffalo State University, where she also studied painting and sculpture. Since 2007, her large-scale photographic images have been shown in numerous exhibitions, including the Louvre in Paris and Times Square in New York City. Her works are included in the permanent collections of the Birchfield Penny Art Center and Roswell Park Cancer Institute. Kath Schifano's plain air style is painting done outdoors. My plain air paintings capture the sights and environment wherever I travel, she said. Artwork created outdoors communicates the sparkle and nature of the day it was created, the weather, the light, and the location. You see what I have experienced. The art of mixing and choosing pigments to create paintings takes me away from daily distractions. I can paint alone for hours, listening to rustling leaves, 
birds, and distant train whistles, taking pleasure in the whimsies of nature. Schifano is a board member of International Plain Air Painters, Niagara Frontier Plain Air Painters, and Buffalo Niagara Art Association. Her oil and pastel art is in public and private collections in 34 states and on five continents. She maintains studios on Grand Island and at the Niagara Arts and Cultural Center in Niagara Falls. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Island Dispatch and the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Next up is a s article submitted by the New York State of De New York St Department of State's Division of Consumer Protection. New York State Department of Consumer Protection issues alert about romance scams. The New York Department of State's Division of Consumer Protection, or the DCP, is warning New Yorkers about romance scams and offering information and tools to help identify and outsmart scammers who prey on people's emotions and trust. Romance scams occur when a criminal lies about their identity and uses romantic interest to manipulate and or steal from the victim. Thieves are different use different variations of these scams to deceive unsuspecting daters. Valentine's Day means love is in the air, and for many, finding that special someone leads to online dating as an easy way to meet their potential match, New York State Secretary of State Robert J. Rodriguez said. But don't underestimate the lengths some scammers will go through to take advantage of your heart to try and steal your money. If you are exploring online dating, I encourage New Yorkers to follow the Division of Consumer Protection's helpful tips to identify these common red flags. The internet provides anonymity, allowing criminals unlimited time to troll for potential victims. Romance scams have the potential to affect everyone. Some groups are more frequently targeted, however, such as seniors, and especially widows, widowers, and recent divorcees. Common elements of a romance scam. Fake online profiles. Scammers create the illusion of someone you would be attracted to and trust. They seek opportunities to meet someone online and create profiles on a wide range of online pro pro platforms, including social media, dating sites, messaging apps, and porn sites. They may find images online to use in their profile to lure unsuspecting victims. Unexpected contact. Scammers may make contact online and use a variety of methods to learn about their victims. They will do online research or scroll the information on your special media profile in order to tap into your interests and emotions, spark a conversation, and build a relationship. Build trust. Scammers are patient and may communicate for weeks or months until they've earned your trust. Unavailable to meet in person. Scammers may propose an in-person meeting, claiming they will travel to see you, but then claim a last-minute emergency preventing it from happening. Scammers will often say they are working outside of the country, creating a convenient reason not to meet in person. Be suspicious of anyone who says they want to meet, but then always makes excuses for why they can't. Request money. Scammers often start by requesting small amounts of money and paying it back quickly to build trust. Eventually, the scammers may request a large sum of money, usually as a loan, to be wired to them for things ranging from business investments, property debts, illness, and more. They may even ask for money for airfare so they can visit you. Once they receive the money, the scammer will often ask for more or create a new reason they need to borrow money. This will continue until the victim becomes suspicious, at which point the scammer will usually stop all contact and disappear. Fake Cryptocurrency Investment The FBI has identified a trend in which criminals are increasingly pressuring victims to invest in cryptocurrency. The scam starts as an online relationship, but instead of asking for cash, the scammer convinces the victim to invest in cryptocurrency. 
To demonstrate the returns on investment, victims are directed to fake websites that trick victims into believing these investment opportunities are legitimate. Once the victim makes a purchase, they are denied the ability to cash out their investments and the scammer vanishes. And liability. Scammers may convert their victims into unwitting criminals by convincing them to launder and move fraudulent funds, which the victim may then be liable for, both financially and potentially criminal. criminal. Tips to avoid romance scams. If someone you haven't met in person asks you for money, assume it is a scam, even if they say they need it for an emergency or traumatic life event. Never give or loan money to someone that you have not met in person. Remember that wire transfers, prepaid cards, gift cards, and cryptocurrency are all equal to sending cash that you cannot get back. If someone, someone asks for these types of payments, assume it is a scam. Do not give out personal information to someone online, including payment and banking information, especially if you have not met them before. Use trusted online dating sites, but still exercise caution. Beware of online interactions that quickly ask you to leave a dating service of social media site to communicate directly. Be cautious of people you meet online who say they are an American abroad or a deployed soldier. Schedule a live video chat early in the relationship to ensure they are the person they are presenting in their profile. Research anyone in whom you have an interest. Ask questions. Look them up online. Verify details where you can. Do a reverse image search of the person's profile picture. If it is linked to another name or details that don't line up, it's likely a scam. Familiarize yourself with privacy settings for all your online platforms and consider limiting who has access to your personal information, contact lists, and location. Turn off or cover your web cameras when you're not using them. And don't keep it a secret. Talk to a friend or relative about online interactions. And now let's go back through the years from past issues of the Island Dispatch. 60 years ago, February 20th, 1964, Ice Boom proposed to halt damage. The State Power Authority and the Ontario Hydro Commission have reached the conclusion that the only way to alleviate the severe ice condition, which is a yearly problem in the Niagara River, is to prevent or at least limit the sporadic and massive discharges of ice from Lake Erie into the river. They propose a two-mile ice boom across the end of Lake Erie to control the ice that has hampered power production and caused considerable damage in the area including Grand Island. This announcement was made last Thursday at a press conference held in the Parkway Inn in Niagara Falls. The proposed boom would consist of a string of timbers linked together in steel cables and held to the anchors by heavy chains and cables. The floating barrier would be put in place each fall and removed in the spring. It would be installed on a trial basis after permission is obtained from the International Joint Commission, the U.S. Corps of Engineers, and the Canadian Department of Public Works. There is no guarantee that the boom would work perfectly or that it is a cure-all, engineers emphasized, but it is reasonable to expect that under most conditions the boom would be effective and should at least limit and minimize the amount of ice discharged into the river. And again, that was 60 years ago, February 20th, 1964. Forty years ago, February 17th, 1984, aisle meeting scheduled on bridge work. The southbound span of the North Grand Island Bridge will be reconstructed this summer, according to the Thruway Authority. All bridges connecting the island with the mainland also are being programmed for reconstruction over the next several years. Other thruway programs affecting town residents using the superhighway include rebuilding the entire Niagara section of the state highway over the next four years. Bridge work, especially in the summer, has always been a source of headaches to Grand Island drivers. 
The island dispatch learned Wednesday that Thruway Authority engineers and its public affairs staff from Albany and Buffalo plan to meet with the town officials in public at 7 p.m. March 1st in the high school here to talk over the impact of the reconstruction job. Assemblyman William B. Hoyt, who represents Grand Island and Albany, requested the meeting, indicating that although he is glad to have the work done, he is calling upon Thruway officials to use good judgment and sound planning to minimize inconvenience to residents. Just how the traffic is to be handled, especially at peak hours, remains to be seen. The meeting March 1st will also give town officials and citizens an opportunity to ask questions and hopefully get some worthwhile answers. And that was 40 years ago, February 17th, 1984. And now, 20 years ago, February 20th, 2004, GIFC receives fire prevention grant. State Senator Byron Brown recently demonstrated his continued and steadfast support of the local volunteer fire service by presenting the Grand Island Fire Company with a $1,000 fire prevention grant. The Grand Island Fire Department does a tremendous job. It is a model fire department in the region, and I feel that it deserves special recognition for its service to the community, Brown said. Brown noted the region's Senate district as a crime prevention program that provides funding for fire departments, neighbors, associations, and police agencies. The Senate generally provides anywhere from $20,000 to $40,000 in grant funding to eligible organizations in the region, which includes the town of Grand Island and the cities of Tonawanda, Buffalo, and Niagara Falls. For an organization to be eligible, they must submit a general application form describing the various programs and general services that they plan to engage in to ensure the safety of the community. This grant will assist the Grand Island Fire Department in its mission of protecting the safety of the residents of Grand Island, said Brown. And that was 20 years ago, February 20th, 2004. Our next article is uh, written by Alice Gerard, Untold Stories from Underground Railroad Presented at Library. In 1833, a ferryman was getting ready to leave from Ferry Street in Buffalo with his passenger, a freedom seeker who had fled from slavery, slavery when a commotion ensued. Up rode the freedom seeker's master upon a foaming steed. He drew his loaded pistol. He told the ferryman, if you lose that bo boat to convey my negro to the opposite bank, I'll blow your brains out, related Lily Wiley Upshaw chair of the Buffalo Niagara Freedom Station Coalition based in Buffalo. The Negro seized the hand spike and holding it menacingly over the ferryman's head said, if you don't lose the boat and ferry me across, I'll beat your brains out. The ferryman, one of the best of his class, a Yankee, seeing both equally determined, decided, well, I can't die but once, and if I die, I guess I'd rather die doing right. So here goes the boat. Off he pushed. Wiley Upshaw related the story and others during a presentation of untold stories from the Underground Railroad on February 10th at the Grand Island Memorial Library. The freedom seekers would often walk long miles, long, difficult, exhausting, dangerous miles to come from a place where they were being harmed, where they were being brutalized, to a place where they hoped they could find a better life, Wiley Upshaw said. Buffalo was one of those places where they could find that freedom, where they could find this freedom to define for themselves, to create a life for themselves. But it wasn't still without its dangers. The Underground Railroad is one part of a resistance movement against slavery. From the very beginning, there were protests and fighting back. We know that when Af Africans were taken out of Africa, they were fighting the whole time. The Underground Railroad was just one form of resistance. When they were here, they did anything that they could. Wiley Upshaw also discussed the history of the Michigan Street Baptist Church, which was the first black church in Buffalo, as well as the Colored Musicians Club, which is a place that has a history in jazz, with jazz greats of the 30s and 40s visited and walked through their doors, he, she said. 
It's also an active spot for musicians to gather. There is also the Nash House Museum, which is a small house museum of the Reverend Nash. He was the longest serving pastor of the Michigan Street Baptist Church. His house is really engaging for kids because it's set up as it looked when the Nashes lived there. So you can walk back through the history and time. Then there's also WUFO, which is the Black History and Radio Collective. It's a black radio station owned by Sheila Brown. She may be the only female black radio station owner in the country right now. She started a history collective that shares and documents the history of radio in our state and our city. Both the Michigan Street Baptist Church and the Colored Musicians Club are currently undergoing restoration. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Island Dispatch and the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. We'll turn our attention now to the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel. Our first article is written by Joshua Maloney. Village of Lewiston provides clarification on expected removal of Water Street tree. Residents in the village of Lewiston took to social media over the weekend to voice concerns regarding the removal of a blue spruce tree located next to the Freedom Crossing Monument on North Water Street. At their monthly meeting on November 20th, 2023, trustees voted three to two to have the roughly 30-foot tree and an adjoining crabapple tree taken down. Mayor Ann Welch and board members Dan Gibson and Tina Coppins voted in favor, while Deputy Mayor Vic Eit and Nick Condy dissented. On Monday, Welch said, The beautification committee asked if we could take the spruce down because they want to redo the park. It's overgrown. It's got sharp needles, so it's not real park friendly. Moreover, it blocks the view of the Freedom Crossing Monument, the view of the river, it's getting too tall to really take care of it. It's just going to get bigger and bigger, and it encompasses a lot of the park at then. It starts consuming more green space. Welch also shared part of a statement she provided to a village resident that read, in part, the Beautification Commission wants to redevelop Lewiston Landing Park with benches, gardens, and flowering trees. The large pine tree in Academy Park was removed years ago because it also became a problem. Obviously, the Beautification Commission works very hard to beautify Lewiston, and we do not normally take down trees, but in this case, I feel it is warranted. Department of Public Works Superintendent Larry Wills explained, the spruce trees in good shape. There's nothing wrong with the tree. It's a nice, aesthetic tree. We used to put Christmas lights on that tree around Christmas. On the downside of that, any spruce tree or evergreen tree like that, they're shallow-rooted, so they only live for so long to begin with. But like I told the board, that's not my decision. If you guys want me to cut down a good live tree, that's totally up to you guys. I take down trees on a regular basis, but that's when they're totally damaged or they're split, or they're a danger to the residents. He added, the crabapple tree, which was in really bad shape, the crabapple tree that sat in front of that tree has already been taken down. That's been down since right around the holidays. The thing was in bad shape. That thing, it was cracking apart. It was small and it needed to come down. The one, that one was close to the road, so the DPW was able to just cut down that by hand. The wet weather, coupled with the cost of tree removal, has delayed the DPW in removing the evergreen spruce. This other tree is back in the grass, and if we go cut it down, that's why the guys didn't do that right away, because if you go back up in there with equipment, you're going to tear the grass all up because it's so soft, Will said. That's why it hasn't been taken down yet. I rent lifts to take trees down, and the smaller trees like that, crabapple tree, we just do ourselves. I only rent lifts for like a day or maybe two days at a time because I don't own them. I've got to rent them. So what I'll do is I'll gather up like three or four trees that size that I have to do throughout the village or trim, trim some dead branches off a tree. I'll have a list going just that I can do myself to save the village money. I don't have enough right now on my lifts 
to rent a lift. And not only that, but if I drove the lift up in there, it's going to start tearing up the grass. Now I'm going to spend a budget of money on topsoil. If, I can, if it can wait, I'll wait until the ground's a little harder to get in there. Wills noted, I have my own trees that we maintain and we take care of, but if somebody requests a tree taken down, they've got to go through the board if it's not dead. He said, do evergreens or spruce trees last a really long time? No, because they're shallow rooted. So the taller and the more mature they get, the more chance for them to come over. Is that ready to do that right now? Uh, I don't really think so. But if the board says take it down, I take it down. I'm not an elected official. Wills said the evergreen spruce tree would not be removed before the next village board meeting, which is Tuesday, February 20th. Nicole Johnson, a member of the Beautification Commission, explained, any gardener can tell you that a garden is an ever-changing project. The Lewiston Landing is no different. One focus of the Lewiston Beautification Committee is to help enhance the Lewiston Landing and make it more inviting. It already boasts a gorgeous view of the mighty Niagara, but part of that view is obstructed by the pine tree that seems to have caused an uproar on popular social media sites. This tree is one of around 20 trees at the Lewiston Landing. After much discussion, including that in 2023, a homeless man had made a home underneath the tree, the blocking of the river, and the odd placement of the tree, we, as a group, decided to suggest to the board to have it removed. These reasons convinced me, along with many other plant and tree-loving people, that this was a good idea. The torch and pitchfork ideology about the removal of the tree on social media is disheartening. I find it odd, the uproar over one tree, when I know for a fact over the years that the Garden Club and Beautification Committee have planted hundreds of trees, thousands of plants, and dedicated countless hours to beautifying our village and community. I ask the reader, how many real Christmas trees have you had in your home over the years, and how many trees have you replanted to replace the loss of life of that tree? How can a small government function or get anything done if the residents of this community want an opinion on every single item some random person brings up on social media. There are board meetings. Go to them. Make your opinions heard. It makes a difference. You can also make a huge impact by doing community service instead of only voicing your opinion behind a screen. Join Garden Club. Join Beautification. Donate money. Donate time. Pick up trash. Adopt a garden. Do something to keep the village beautiful. We are always looking for more residents to partake of giving your time to keep Lewiston a beautiful place to live and visit. Our next article comes from Editor-in-Chief Terry Duffy, U.S. Border Patrol working on issues of illegal border crossings. Responding to concerns over a spike in illegal border activity on the lower Niagara River, Agents from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection provided some answers to residents in a well-attended information session last Thursday at Porter Town Hall. Bradley Weichel, commander of the Niagara Falls Station for the U.S. Border Patrol Buffalo Sector, opened by discussing the many roles of border agents who comprise the Buffalo Sector. He said the operation covers some 25,464 miles in the eastern Great Lakes, and Buffalo is one of 20 such nationwide in the U.S. Every agency is working with us on this problem, Weichel said. We've had CBP, U.S. Coast Guard, Office of Field Operations, Lewiston PD, Youngstown PD, Niagara County Sheriffs, State Police, New York Park Police. There is not a single agency that has not come with us to help. So, what are Border Patrol agents contending with right now? We're seeing people crossing in rafts, Weichel said. This type of activity is nothing new. Weichel said it has been a part of life in the lower river for a century, dating to 1924, when agents monitored bootlegging during Prohibition. It has never completely gone away. What we're seeing now has always been here. I've been here for four years. We have always had people crossing the river. We've always had drugs crossing the river. 
What has changed between now and then is the frequency. He said the illegal crossings in the lower river have increased 300 to 400 percent in just months. In the past, we might see a raft maybe four or five times per year. Since November, we've had over 20 incidents, Weichel said. That's a significant increase for us, going from three or four per year to more than 20 since November. As far as location and frequency, it's the whole lower river, Weichel said. There is not a place on the lower river where we haven't seen a raft landing. Weichel said main target our areas have been around Lewiston Landing, around Joseph Davis State Park, but where we're seeing the majority of them have been around Youngstown Estates, Collingwood Estates, and in Youngstown, where we've seen most of these rafts landing on shore. Of the more than 20 such events, the majority of them have been inflatable rafts, Weichel said. We have seen some regular boats too. Most of them have been small dinghies, fiberglass, or aluminum boats. We had an 18-foot aluminum boat with a motor come across February 8th, about 4 a.m. They're coming across at almost always at night because criminals don't like to be caught. We have seen everything from a single person crossing in a tiny little raft rowing across to four to five boats launched at the same time with one, two people coming across to inflatable boats with four people in them to an aluminum boat with five people in them. Each event, with one to five people coming across, always at night. Every single time of these events, when we encounter people, they are soaking wet. We're talking November to February. The group that crossed earlier this morning, it was 25 degrees, water temperature hovering around 35 degrees. That is my greater fear with these. It keeps happening, unfortunately, someone is going to be lost in the water. This is a safety thing here. They're not from here. They don't know the dangers. They cross the river, but they don't stay here. Every single person is trying to go somewhere else. Of those crossings, he added, they want to avoid an encounter with you, with anyone. They'll either have someone to pick them up or they're on their own. They'll hide in different areas, a hedgerow, an unlocked shed, a summer residence, an unlocked house. Their intention is to get away. My advice is to lock your doors. If you're not doing it now, you should. Weichel explained, Canada has this thing called Electronic Travel Authorizations, or ETAs. It's an app. You can pay $7 for it. You can cross into Canada by plane without a visa. Mexico is one of the countries that can do it now, and there's about 50 to 60 others that allow, are allowed to do it. That means there's a minimal amount of vetting People from Mexico can fly directly into Canada. One of the biggest is in Toronto. It's only 30 miles across the lake. My station happens to be the closest border patrol station to Toronto. That hub is being fueled by these ETAs, and that's where these people are coming from. They connected with a network of smugglers. What we're seeing up here is a spider web of bad people that are all connected somehow. It's one guy knows an immigrant population. Another guy knows how to get them down towards Niagara Falls. Another guy his, has vehicle access. All this network comes together, and that's what starts moving people. The smugglers, all that they care about is the bottom line. To them, it's a business. The people who are getting smuggled, they don't see them as people. To a smuggler, they're only a commodity. It's why we're seeing crossing the river when it's only 15, 20 degrees outside. What should residents do in an encounter? If you see something, say something, Weichel said. If you see something abnormal, give us a call. Don't try to transport them. You could be cited for aiding and abetting. When we see them as law enforcement, we're going to catch them. We want those smugglers. They're the ones that are driving this. They're the ones that are putting people into real danger. We're working with Homeland Security investigations with Canadian law enforcement, and we're working with all our local and state partners to make that happen. Our job is to build these cases up to get those folks in jail. That's how you ultimately stop it. Weichel said he expects illegal crossings to continue until collectively we're su successful in making it 
that it's no longer an attractive place here, and they're not making money. Smugglers only care about the bottom line. They're going to move people wherever they think they can, as long as they're making money. We will keep what we're doing as law enforcement, attacking this and keep catching these smugglers until it becomes unpopular to continue doing it. Why go closed by urging residents who may encounter any such activity to contact the Border Patrol at 1-800-331-0353. That's 1-800-331-0353. Or call 911 to reach area law enforcement. If you see something, say something, he stressed. Weigel said agents along the northern border have caught illegals from 79 different countries. The Buffalo sector alone has caught 21. In rafts, mostly from Mexico, from India, Pakistan, Colombia, Ecuador, Dominican Republic, pretty much every Central American country. Most of the people we are catching are what we call economic migrants. They are people coming here looking for work. They're not looking to break into somebody's house. They're looking for work, to move on, get work. However, there's also sex offenders, gang members, illegals who assault, Weichel said. Not everyone crossing is a good person. You don't know. Until we bring them into our station, run biometric checks, we don't know their history either. So, if you see someone hiding in your neighborhood, hiding in your backyard, don't mess with them. Call. Don't try to be a hero. You don't know who they are. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Island Dispatch and the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And our next article is written by Michelle Kratz, a true phantom of the Lewiston Opera. At one time, they were people. They lived, loved, breathed, just as we do. But life is finite, and now they rest on the other side at the village cemetery. Of course, once in a while, curiosity gets to them, and they can't help but peek at us, the living. They are quiet and mostly unseen. They only want us to know that, at one time, they were like us. And don't we all have a story? Perhaps one of the first phantoms from Lewiston's past who has a story worth telling is Joseph Prentice Hewitt the father of the Opera Hall. Hewitt, contractor, farmer, and lumberman, built the edifice known as the Opera Hall in 1832 to house a series of stores. Over the years, it became the real hub of Lewiston social life. Dinners, charity events, elegant balls, and lectures were held here. At one time, Lewiston's telephone dispatch office was held on the first floor. A butcher ran his ghastly trade in the basement spaces. Secret societies held meetings here. And a few ghost hunts, attempts to contact the other side, also took place here in this space in the more recent past. Hewitt is probably most amazed at how some things have changed in Lewiston and also how some things have stayed the same. He would certainly be pleased that the Opera Hall is still buzzing with life. Born in Leroy, in Genesee County on September 20, 1803, to Joseph Hewitt and Hannah Forsyth, he came to the area as a small child. At that time, in the early 1800s, Niagara County was a wide-open wilderness, teeming with deadly snakes and unknown dangers. The Hewitt family settled initially on the Ridge Road. They are forever linked to the history of the establishment of Niagara County after an act of legislature passed on March 11th 1808. By 1810, the Hewitt family moved to Lewiston, where Joseph stayed until his death. In 1813, when the British set fire to Lewiston during the War of 1812, his family was among those forced to leave. They took whatever they could carry and escaped in the chill of that December night. Everything they had built swept away in the smoke. It was said that even as just a small boy of only 10 years of age, Hewitt acted in a most courageous manner. They returned to the homestead following the peace, and that is where they stayed. On December 20, 1826, Hewitt was married to Lydia Wagoner. He spent a lifetime as a gentleman of Lewiston. 
He was a large property owner and had five farms, as well as village property. Upon his death on August 13, 1887, Hewitt left a son and a daughter. His remains are buried at the village cemetery. Joseph P. Hewitt never wanted to leave Lewiston. It was his home, and it might be said that his spirit lives on at the Opera House. Ownership of the building has changed hands over the years as people's fortunes came and went. One of the longest deed holders was Reuben Moss, for whom the building was named. It is currently owned by a small group of investors, Opera Hall Events, LLC, who have lovingly restored the second floor into one of Lewiston's most delightfully charming indoor venues, featuring monthly musical, theatrical, and children's events. For more information, check out Phantoms of the Opera Hall on Facebook or email phantomsoftheoperahall at gmail.com. Our next article is by Terry Duffy, Lewiston Porter, to begin a joint reassessment program. Plans offered to address drainage slash flooding. Lewiston Town Board members got down to business Monday with significant projects for 2024 unveiled at their town hall work session. Reassessments to begin. The town announced a new joint endeavor with Porter that would see a full-scale reassessment beginning in both communities this spring. Supervisor Steve Broderick said, It has been over 23 years since both communities have conducted a town-wide reassessment project. The project will save both communities money by utilizing the same vendor and the ability to share data when processes. Broderick said the projects would begin in the winter of 2024 and be completed by July 1, 2026. A similar announcement was made this week in the town of Porter. According to a GAR Associates appraisal firm project statement for both towns released from Supervisor John Duffy Johnson, during the years 2001 to 2007, the municipalities maintained full value assessments through a New York State-sponsored program titled Annual Assessments. That program ceased to provide aid for maintaining full value assessments, and both communities, like several others, opted out of the program. Since 2007, property values have experienced significant changes. In addition, both communities have also seen progressive growth in both residential and commercial type properties. The projects will be conducted jointly, saving both communities money by utilizing the same vendor and the ability to share various data and processes. A process will include a comprehensive property inventory data review verification, and collection of current data. A new digital sketch and photographs will be created. This process will begin in the spring. No one will be entering your property, both exterior and interior. All data will be verified using the latest technology, including aerial imagery. Authorized staff that may be conducting digital photography and or public right-of-way review will have proper identification. Upon completion of the data verification process, property owners will have the opportunity to review the collected and verified data online. If any errors or omissions are identified, property owners will have the opportunity to submit changes for further review. Commercial property owners will receive an income and expense questionnaire as well. In the fall of 2025, new property assessments will be created based on current market conditions. New assessments will be mailed to all property owners in both towns no later than March 1, 2026. Property owners will have an opportunity to challenge the new property assessment and all values will be finalized by July 1, 2026. Through the project, public information and transparency will be created and maintained to ensure property owners are kept informed and updated. Website information, including customized web videos, will be posted throughout the project regarding the various phases of the project. Remember, reassessment projects do not raise more tax dollars. Rather, the process is a redistribution of budgets and levies to ensure property owners are only paying their fair share of the property tax burden. In the Lewiston Town Board resolution approved Monday, the Town of Lewiston Town Board hereby expresses its support 
of its town assessor in updating the town's 2026 assessment role and maintenance of such assessment role at full market value and annually maintains assessment equity at 100% full value assessment after 2026 and authorized the sufficient allocation of sufficient resources for town services and staff to complete such project in the annual maintenance of assessment equity. The town board further requests that the New York State Office of Real Property Tax Services and the Niagara County Office of Real Property Services provides assistance that is typically afforded during such projects to the town of Lewiston. The motion went on to be unanimously approved by town board members. Town addressing drainage. In other news, the town will be taking steps to address recurring perfect storm events that are now impacting the region with greater frequency. During the summer of 2021, the winter of 2024, and several past years, the town of Lewiston experienced several rain events that caused flooding and sewer backups in several areas throughout the town, Broderick said. The town board is committed to system-wide infrastructure improvements to address these decades-long problems and improve the quality of life for Lewiston residents. As a result, the town is looking into a backflow preventer grant program whereby the town reimburses homeowners up to a certain dollar amount to be determined to install backflow preventers. Jeff Ritter, Chief Operator of the Water Pollution Control Center, or WPCC, said, On January 26th, Western New York was in another perfect storm. Town of Lewiston received about an inch and a half of rain with snowpack already on the ground. The Water Pollution Control Center received dozens of phone calls pertaining to flooded properties and basements. This episode was not confined to the town of Lewiston, but every town in western New York. Although these episodes seem to be more frequent, the town is doing the best to mitigate these problems with the sewer system drainage concerns. Many issues come up on private property that cause basements to back up with water after the collection system is fully charged, and in some cases direct directly leading to flooding basements, such as broken or disconnected vent stacks, improper sump pump discharges, floor drains, downspouts, gutter discharging, and improper basement discharging. All of these pipes eventually join together, so efforts made by one homeowner can affect an entire neighborhood. The town of Lewiston wants to be proactive in protecting homeowners' personal property and we would like to offer home evaluations and code compliance inspections to educate homeowners on what measures can be taken to protect their homes from sewer backups in the future. I would like any homeowner to get a hold of me to set up an appointment or call me with any questions pertaining to the sewer system. Ritter can be contacted at 716-754-8291 or via email at jritter at town of town Lewiston, New U.S. Broderick said he, town attorney Al Bax, and Ritter are looking into several other programs offered to municipalities across the country and Canada, trying to resolve the same exact problems some of our residents are experiencing here. Lewiston is not alone, experiencing severe flooding based on current weather patterns that have brought milder winters to our area. The town is prepared to move forward in an attempt to find solutions to several areas of concern. This board will be supporting Highway Superintendent Mitch Zano to increase cleaning of town ditches and other necessary steps to alleviate town-wide drainage issues. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the Friday, February 16, 2024 issues of the Island Dispatch and the Niagara County Tribune slash Sentinel. Your reader has been Will Evans. Thank you for listening.
Hello, this is Jane, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on 